the chi- the TNG cast, or better known as the gang who can't shoot straight, here on V'ger, please. A heinous trip at warp five. My name is Joseph. The phasers are no longer to my head to force me to watch these. I'm your co-host, Peter. <laughs> I, as uh, you related to me, uh, Casey even came along on this ride with you. Yeah, my wife. Uh, because of our scheduling constraints for the first one through four, I had to. I couldn't wait for her schedule to get around for it. But these past uh, four. And we're going to be talking about season three of Picard episodes five, six, seven, and eight. Um, she was there. And <clears throat> luckily, the way you did break it up, uh, she was able to come in uh, without having seen the first four. Uh, lots of questions about how these pertain to season one, or at least a little bit she saw. And I was happy to say, well, for the most part, not really. And also interesting to see her pick up on the captain of the Titan. What's the guy's name? Liam Shaw. Shaw, Captain Shaw. That's right. Uh, She seemed to pick up on him real quick. And I said, well, maybe there's a couple scenes from the first uh, few episodes that you might want to go back and check out, which she did not. (laughs) I mean, it held her interest, though, from the sound of it. She 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 soldiered through four of these things with you. Yeah. And. The TLDR, I think, on the the second act of Picard season three. And this is just I we were going to do three, but I, I we audibled midweek. And I'm like, actually, watch eight because eight's the next real firm stopping point. Nine and ten are basically a, a movie completion. Yeah. And I think that that was a good call. This is a clear second act. This is the second act low point, And you kind of emerge from that at the end. Well, I'm going to say the high point was episode five into six and then Agreed. seven and eight. I'm going to say for me personally, were probably the low point of the series <laughs> of the season. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 well, yeah. I agree uh, wholeheartedly five. Um, you know, this is a rewatch for me. I think episode five may end up being my favorite because it has my favorite performances in it. It's not the, the most delicious piece of the Picard candy. It is the most nutritious meal that it hands you. And I think I, upon the rewatch, I I'm enjoying that a lot more seven and eight in six to a degree. That's when you kind of see how slapdash this thing ended up being. And from a production level, uh, clear audio issues, uh, some weird takes, uh, just all of the hallmarks of we didn't get to do pickups because all of these actors are very old and live. Some of them live overseas. So we basically had the time we had, and we had to just shoot it all. Uh, the ADR is very sparse. So they may not even have had like an ADR session with people. And you, you didn't get to like, do extra scenes to like oh, explain things that you kind of missed <laughs> when you're like eating it together. Like, Oh, did we explain why we did that? Oh no. I, I guess we just aren't going to be able to. So there's some of that. So it's kind of nitpicky, but I think the spirit, even in the weaker episodes is still very strong and it ends up. Slow, it, it ramps up nicely there at the end of, of episode eight to set you up for the finale. You know, the pieces are in place. Sure. So going into season three, episode five, Imposters. 
This one was written by Cindy Appel and Chris Derrick and directed by Dan Liu. No names I recognize at all in there. I'm looking up if Dan Liu had any other credits, and it doesn't look like he did, aside from a Strange New Worlds episode. So he did Memento Mori, which was the sub-hunt episode of of that show when they were against the Gorn. Yeah, that was a solid episode. That's one of my favorites, actually, I think. Yeah. When they're right on the edge of that event horizon. Correct. Um, What I do not enjoy and continue to fucking loathe is, of course, Raffi. And that's something my wife was quick to jump on saying, why the fuck is she still in this? To which I couldn't answer. Um, There's cool stuff happening in the Raffi scenes. It's a shame that Michelle Heard is also involved in those scenes to drag them down because she is not a good actor. No. And she is not a plausible action hero, even in the slightest. Nope. She was sold to us as Starfleet intelligence back in season one. And that's something they've driven home harder. She's had two and a half fights with Worf training. And by the end of this act, this this four episode arc here, um, she may as well be Wolverine. That knife fighting changelings in the hallway, taking him down. Um, yeah, suffice it to say, it is the crick in the neck. You can't can't quite get out. She is used less. Uh, she is used probably to the best capacity that could be managed, but it is still just bad. I will note, for example, zero uses of the phrase JL. Right. Like there has been clear improvement. Sure. But it's still not good. I could buy Raffi conceptually. If we were to give her the Mayweather treatment, just rewrite the character, the details while maintaining the conceptual spirit of the character. If she was an angsty, broken savant that could just see patterns, a math whiz. You could even keep the drug addiction, right? Like maybe the drugs really bring it out and mm-hmm. open she feels, the mind up. Yeah, yeah. You <clears throat> could go that sort of direction with it. That she's addicted to the substances to do the best job she can. Addicted to the mentats or whatever that was from in uh, Fallout, right? Some mm-hmm. sort of performance increasing brain drug. And she really made a great name for herself in Starfleet as uh, the go-to intelligence person. Then it finds out she's been taking brain steroids, cost her to her career. She's still great, but she always has to fight with like, like it's like Bane, you know, I, I could be more, I could be a superhuman. I was almost as smart as seven and what, whatever. Maybe she's drinking like ground up fucking Borg pixie dust nanites. That actually would be pretty cool. Like, Hey, I can overclock my brain. By taking these limited duration nanites, but it's called whatever. Instead, they're trying to turn her into a Batman. There's and and a- again, you can make this character whatever you want. You can come write the best fucking backstory for Raffi that you can think of. You still got a Michelle Heard player. It's still going to suck. Woman can't act. And it's just, she can't. I don't understand why people think she is a good actress. Like I, I could. I don't think I could have that conversation with someone and treat and, and treat it seriously. 
You know what was good, though? I liked the Vulcan crime boss guy. Amazing. I thought that was a fucking awesome idea. That guy. If it wasn't for Ro Laren coming in later, I'd say he stole the show. Oh, yeah. He what does. an amazing concept. Uh, all of the guy's motivations lined up logically, which is something we've seen in the past, is that you can pervert logic to whatever yeah. end goal you Just because you're logical doesn't mean you're a nice guy. You're not a total sociopath, right? Like, you can be a greedy asshole lot, you know, guy who's following logical precepts. He looked cool. Him and the... Uh, whatever the skanky or whatever his uh, oh, the, Ferengi the name Ferengi. was. Yeah, the Ferengi crime boss brother. They both had like real Sneed. Brooklyn underworld, like fresh haircuts. They all both look jacked. They're doing steroids. Face like, tats. Fuck you up in a fight. Yeah, it was the first scary Ferengi you've ever I love that seen. run DNC Vulcan logic symbol he's wearing. <laughs> like, I'm a Vulcan, but I'm street. I'm a gangster. Uh, and for as imposing and a bad as dude as he was, I could see him going in and talking to any other Vulcan we've ever encountered and that guy holding his own. Absolutely. He's, uh, a, he's a man of his his race's character. Uh, he's just a criminal. He was awesome. The way that Worf and Raffi got played, uh, specifically using a mobile holographic emitter, which is a BFD, right? Reverse engineered that bad boy apparently in the last 30 years. Sure. I buy that. Uh, and that ties all the way back to uh, uh, our dude doing uh, season eight Voyager, the big deal that Starfleet makes out of the mobile emitter. Yeah, JK. He does that. So Worf gets played the little trap. They try to spring where Raffi's a hologram and Raffi's up and, you know, got her sniper rifle. But logic gangster prepares for their double cross and, and he ends up winning out. Uh, and there's, then, a, there's a triple cross, though. And the triple cross is Worf has Klingon superpowers of getting stabbed, but can still then just get up and keep killing people. So let's talk about Worf. Because at this point, he is turning into a cartoon character. Over they definitely this. De- decided to play him more as the comic relief. Which, why? I, I think it works. Mm-mm. It, I think it works for this season because you need to have some levity and just having Worf be hyper competent and turned into basically a warrior monk. No, the word you're looking for is Jedi. (laughs) Worf is a Jedi this season. And that doesn't bother me, right? I Mm -hmm. can buy Worf who has always been, I'm going to do this to like, I, I'm not going to stop doing this. I'm yeah, going to I'm not do, gonna it do it to 11. Now. I'm doing it to 15. Right. I buy him learning the trick to slowing down your heart rate, being a the, the most dangerous murder guy to ever murder guys. All that stuff's straight on Worf. But for every single line of dialogue he has to end with some sort of a zinger, it just gets to be too much, especially by the end, like when he's rescuing Riker and Troy and like, you know, complaining about personal space and this and that, like it just, you got to have the levity. I think that the levity moments break the scenes up nicely. And I think they, 
you know, Worf's already had his drama. Like, it's weird because you haven't seen his DS9 episodes. He has a ton of the development that the TNG guys never got. Sure. Right? Like, he had a whole fucking, a whole ass journey on that show. And so he's got less to, like, finish up because of that. Whereas everybody else, they kind of got cut short on being able to develop their characters into real humans because that didn't really happen on TNG until, like, season four. And so by the time they kind of got out of the gate, they were already halfway through their run, right? And so a lot of the pleasure that has come from the season, we're going to talk a lot about it in a second when we talk about Roe, is just you have this feast of these actors being able to really like explore the depths of these characters in a way that was completely unexpected to me. Like not at all in a fan service way, but in a genuine actors good TV cool, way. Yeah, good actors doing a cool actor shit way. And like Worf, well, I mean, he's the one in least of need of that. So we got to have someone who breaks things up a little bit of comedy. We can take him in that direction. We can use him for that so that we can kind of let everybody else have that space to to be dramatic because Worf's drama is already over. When every single line of dialogue out of him has a zinger, though, it starts turning into cringe. And they get too close to that. And it stinks because his scenes are good and his portrayal is good. And I'm feeling Jedi Worf. But just, he needed to be 20% more serious. Yeah, like he, he yeah. didn't go full into like, oh, God, like where I'm rolling my eyes. But yeah, I think if they backed it off 20, make every third or every fourth time he talks have a little. A little a little Marvel zinger in there, it would have worked way better. Um, he also had some other lines of dialogues across this. Where there is a. Oh, not a warship, but like a clear preference to Klingon. Better superior Klingon technology, better Klingon this, better Klingon that, like almost a disdain for Starfleet. He's always been on Homer, though. Like he's always been that guy ever since TNG. Superiority of Klingon stuff was always a point of pride to him. No, listen, I feel like, especially when he was talking to other Klingons too, like he was a lot more down, like negative on the Klingon stuff. So I don't know, maybe something happens in Deep Space Nine that really like drives him away from Starfleet. But for a guy who was a by the book security officer, yes, man, uh, fully embracing the dream of Starfleet to see him kind of hold everything Starfleet at a at a arm's length felt very weird to me. There's some explanation in the DS9 stuff for that. We'll get, we'll eventually explore it. I think you'll really enjoy it, but uh, I agree in part with you. I think I liked a lot the, the humor. I think a little less would have worked, uh, but what the way they use it, I think I've, I mostly accept it with, with that discussion of the B plot out of the way, let's get to the heart of the matter of episode five. And that is we get a massive return that I don't think anybody contemporaneous was expecting to happen. So you were fully spoiled that this occurred before you watched. Yeah, it. but I forgot. I, honestly, I forgot she was coming in. Like uh, once I started watching these. My. I, I've been like, all right, when does data come in? Mm-hmm. I know data's coming. He's got to be on the Daystrom Insta 
the Daystrom thing. They keep talking about a flawed AI security. I'm like, that's him, right? Like that's gotta be data. That's, that's gotta be data. Or I, you know, again, from the trailers, like Laura's in there somewhere. Uh, Moriarty's going to be in there somewhere. Like one of these guys are going to be the AI. So uh, when we pick back up on the Titan and they've cleared, you know, they use the alien baby thing to, to get out of there for whatever reason, Titan just didn't circle back around and completely obliterate the shriek <clears throat> moops. <laughs> you have to handle that later. That'll come back and haunt you. Uh, Riker turns command authority back over to Shaw, who's now healed up and Shaw with no shame whatsoever is like, I fucked you guys over. I've been talking to Starfleet. They're coming over here to arrest you. Everybody's in trouble because I got you in trouble. You thought I'd be cool and, you know, appreciate you guys just did some amazing heroic stuff to save the day, but you're going to space jail. <laughs> he he does like, hey, I'll let you guys uh, figure out whatever story you want to tell. Your together. bullshit story. Got that. That's fine. Reinstate seven and nine with like, I like him giving her the fucking night crossed i state you (laughs) is what he does it's like you know what you were stand up i'll let you uh meet meet the gallows as my first officer but uh definitely already told starfleet about all the bullshit you pulled (laughs) you did hijack my ship basically intrepid shows up which i think is very ugly the the way they do the deflector edition that is absolutely hideous which is fine because it's gonna be a bad guy ship there's a, a brief scene when they're in the turbo lift and Shaw's like humming to himself. Like I'm about to watch the the guy who killed all my friends get arrested. <laughs> this is awesome. And they, they, they try to bite back a little bit. Like we have saved the world multiple times. You realize that, right? Like you shouldn't be enjoying this quite so much. And then starts to like, Oh, you mean like when you guys hot dropped the Evan enterprise D saucer on Viridian three or the time you broke the prime directive. So you can make out with a local babe. Like, what was the Devron system? Oh, that was the all good things. He was describing the plot of all good things with the temporal incursion in the Devron system. That was that was uh, Q's thing about the the crossing of the time space continuum, which is funny because that means Picard reported on it because he was the only one who remembered it. Mm -hmm. They wound up in like the hey, captains, Q did this fucky thing. Be prepared. Apparently, he can fuck with all of time and space. He might cause you to be the 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 very axis on which the judgment of humanity <laughs> will be based. FYI. <laughs> so, <clears throat> Starfleet informs, uh, or actually, the Intrepid informs Titan that a Starfleet uh, intelligence officer is going to be coming over to take Picard and co into custody on a shuttlecraft on a shuttlecraft, which at this point we know, or at least uh, uh, Beverly is starting to figure out that these, uh, these changelings are something new about them. And there's some cool background info too. Like during the dominion war, uh, you know, the anti-doppelganger security protocol started coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which is all like, with, fully within the continuity of DS9. Like, this is really like taking that and taking all of that seriously. Of, like, there was a whole protocol back then. Anybody who's ever played D&D and encountered a doppelganger knows that as soon as you've got, like, reasons to doubt people are who they say they are. And are you really my friend or are you just playing along with the dungeon master to try and fuck us over? Like that's how you derail a D and D campaign is doppelgangers. 
So changelings are a real fucking threat. And Starfleet seems like it has some pretty ironclad ways to rule that out. But this new class of changeling threatens all of that. And a lot of the technologies for verifying Starfleet as Starfleet seem to be based around scans that happen during transporter use. So the fact that they're coming over on a shuttle pod looks real bad. And of course, when this security officer emerges with an entourage, it is none other than Ro Laren, played in all of her glory by Michelle Forbes. Who's looking amazing, which, by the way. Yeah, I mean, she looks fantastic. Uh, the deal, apparently, that Terry Metalis struck to get her to do this, because famously, she had nothing to do with Trek, to the point where she turned down a... Uh, second billing on DS9, right? She was supposed to be Kira Norris because Kira Norris is supposed to be Ro Laren, and she just didn't want to do it. She wanted to be done. And so Terry Metalis, apparently his his skills are not just in convincing Patrick Stewart to stop fucking his show and show up, <laughs> but, but also getting Michelle Forbes 30 years after the fact to come back to Star Trek. And there was only one condition, apparently, to get her to do it. Had to kill her at the end. Why? Was she didn't want to do it again. What is she, like, she doing? End. What is she doing that she hates the idea of solid work so much? Oh, to be independently wealthy in California. <laughs> I guess she doesn't need it. I don't know. Maybe she's got a rich husband. I don't know. No, no sure. Michelle Forbes' life. You know, like, again, I mean, uh, my wife was very excited to see. It. She's like, why do I recognize this lady? I'm like, she was the evil admiral on the Pegasus and battle struggle and also that too you're gonna sit there you're gonna hate the shit out of star trek so much that you're not gonna take an amazing opportunity to have second billing on ds9 and then you're gonna turn around and do basically voyager version six battlestar galactica it's probably more attractive to her when it's things that she doesn't have to commit to for years upon years. That seems to be her attitude, right? She did a whole season of True Blood because she was an antagonist and then got out of that. Yeah, she was like, like the fairy, whatever. Yeah, she was like the Greek Dionysian, like, you know, weird shapeshifter. And uh, the, you know, she did Admiral Kane, but it was like a few episodes and appearance in a TV movie. You know, like she, she gets to... To, to do it, she gets to like put her put a spin on it. She gets to get a performance out, and she gets to go do something else. It seems to be her vibe. But this is fucking awesome. Let me tell you what this made me want. Give me some fucking short treks dealing with her specifically. Give me some one offs because uh, the first half of this episode where she shows up, real great job presenting her as. I, I'm probably not the real Ro Laren at this point because there's tons of sp- suspicion pouring out from Beverly, uh, which you're seeing, you know, them dissecting organs into like mm-hmm. quadrants. And then finally, as they, you know, break it down into 20th, these things melt into jello or whatever. Makes no sense that she would have been reinstated. But we've been shown, and I'm reluctant to again go into Picard season one or two, but Starfleet does some shady ass shit. So going back in and scooping her out and all that is exemplified through Picard's observations in this. Right. And and that's the other part of this that makes this, I think going to be my favorite episode of the whole season. We've, we've said before when we were reviewing Picard 
Patrick Stewart's too old to do this. Even in the first four episodes of the show, he seems to be take he's he's been in com- at a more commanding role. He's certainly being treated seriously, but he's still a little weak. You know, he's still an 80 year old man and they've integrated that more into his character. So it, it's flowing, it's working, but you have a lot of the, the weight being carried by your supporting characters in those first four episodes. And for good reason, this is his best work since Logan in this episode. It's gotta be so hard to like pick up this level of emotional intensity over a TV show you did three decades ago. But they managed to really sell the idea of, first, you've got Picard, who he's fucking hated this bitch for 30 years. She has felt betrayed. He has felt hurt. He has felt professionally and personally wounded. And you see every inch of that in his performance. From when he's talking about it with Will to when he starts confronting her on a professional level, when he confronts her on a personal level. He's there 100% delivering a level of intensity and richness to his portrayal that I have not seen in anything he's done since since specifically Logan. Yeah. That was well, really good. It's an easy concept to get behind, right? There's nothing Star Trek exclusive about what we're seeing here. It's, it's the most base Shakespearean conflict out there. It's betrayal, uh, humiliation. It is a trusted friend putting a knife in your back. And these are absolutely things that, you know, Patrick Stewart should be able to really wake himself up on. And those episodes towards the end of uh, Roe Laren in TNG, they're good. And I'm sure at a certain point, you know, they, these guys sit back and go, okay, well, let me watch what happened there. Let me try and tap into what I was thinking through these. And it's such a juicy setup, too, that Roe Laren would have come crawling back to Starfleet, turned herself in, then they would bring her back in through this uh, rehabilitation program and this and that, all behind Picard's back. Picard, who was an admiral, who's pissed about this, who I'm sure, and they don't say this, but you know that's probably a black mark on his record that his operative he sent in fucked him all over. And, And again, a point of humiliation. So not only did she get back in, but all of this happening exclusively behind his back. And now here he is at a disadvantage and this old protege of his coming out from this black ops cloud and lording power over him. Uh, Great anger. Oh, yeah. Has to just humiliation. Just chap the ass of like, how in the hell are you the one who's going to sit in judgment? He's like, he's stewing from the beginning, right? Like he's sitting in the room with Riker and goes, the last time you saw her, she put a fucking gun to your head. Riker could have said last time. I, I've also put a gun to her head. My gun was my penis when we didn't yeah. have our memories. But, you know, yeah, fair is fair. And he, he's pissed then. He's like, he, she betrayed a, a commanding officer. You know, the, the, the trust they put in her to, to pull that operation down. Like, what what is this? And when they start the personal level of the confrontation, and the piece of this that's so special is... In TNG, in that last episode that she was in, which was like the second to last episode of the fucking show, it was clear that he and Ro had some kind of connection that went beyond their professional regard, right? It was beyond I'm mentoring a younger officer. They clearly connected on a personal level in this 
ambiguous pseudo romantic fashion. Like I'm thinking of the scene when like they have to like that they're communicating covertly about her op, but they have to like act like she's a prostitute that's going to be selling her services to him. And that whole scene that they have at that bar, they're being like, have to pantomime intimacy while she's expressing her concern. He's trying to give him orders. And like that it ends with, you know, this both a, a comment from Roe about the price that she's being asked to pay for her, for her morals versus, you know, in, in the world of this play acting that they're doing. And it's like, there's a lot going on there and they actually pay that off 30 years later here. That's really good. And through all of it, you can't tell, you honestly can't tell as the audience if she's a shapeshifter or not. Because there's things that just clearly don't line up. Yeah. There's a lot of her story that's real flimsy. And Picard picks up on it strong. Uh, first thing I notice is, where's her earring? And Picard calls that out specifically. Um, so it takes a while before we get the answer. Is this the real Rolaren or not? Even if it's not the real Rolaren, it's still an amazing fucking performance. And you're like, all right, even if this isn't her, like whatever shapeshifter this is, like there might be actually a good bad guy shapeshifter I can get behind. Because at this point, I'm fucking done with main bad guy lady. <laughs> you are uh, not a fan of Vatic by the end of this. Vatic started off really good. And I think she just got too much screen time and there wasn't enough to the character there to really to, to hold it in the air, right? The wings weren't wide enough to, to get it to the heights. They had this character operating. Put, putting the focus on her in both seven and eight was a mistake. You know, like there was enough content for one episode there. Not yeah. Two. But I, I love that the pain between the two of them over her ethics versus his duty is what is essentially the two factor authentication that neither of them are changelings because only they could communicate like that. There's no one who could have known how they felt about each other except for them because they never even figured out for themselves. It's literally what Picard says at the end when Will goes to conf- to console him. He goes, uh, you know, I, I know you must feel. And he's like, no, you don't because I don't, I, I, I didn't know. I still don't. It's uh, a message comes through from Beverly saying, uh, you know, watch out. Yeah, they trust can, no one. Sur- they can survive our scans. Uh, they break the meeting. Uh, Picard goes off. Actually, Picard just walks out of his like interrogation like, mm, I got shit to do. See you later. She uh, confronts him one on one over by the holodeck because they have to keep reusing the same set pieces. She he pulls she pulls a gun on him. And forces him I in hate there. these fucking phasers so much, man. It gets some close-ups. <laughs> uh, I also love the fact that the safety settings for the holodeck now is just like on the lock screen of the phone. <laughs> the <laughs> easiest fucking thing to like bump. So he pulls a gun on her and they really start biting into each other hard at that point. Yeah. So you thought that she was concerned that he was a changeling then? Yeah, yeah. I think that he was she was trying to make sure he was who he was and he he was doing the same thing because ultimately what does she do immediately after they've confirmed each other's identities 
oh, I raced here as soon as I knew you were involved in this nonsense because of all of the people I've ever encountered, I know I can trust you to do the right thing. Like, you're the man, you know, driven by duty. It's literally the reason why we haven't spoken in 30 years. I have to give you this. Perfect sense. So good. Perfect. Just, just 10 out of 10. No notes. Uh, I, I can believe that they got her to do it. And I couldn't believe how good she was doing it. And like you, it's a shame Michelle Forbes hates regular work <laughs> because I'd saying, watch man. her all day. Give me a couple short treks. Show me her journey, uh, quitting the Maquis, deciding to go back into Starfleet, whatever brainwashing program they put her through. And then this. I, I don't want Section 31 out of Discovery with Michelle Yeoh. I do want Rolaren's Intelligence Adventures. I don't think she's Section 31. I think she's just Starfleet Intelligence. But man, this chick's doing some dirty ass shit. That's, you know, and it makes sense, like hire your, you know, a, a, an, a ethical but uh, rebellious former officer that knows how to do dirt and is willing to do dirt on your behalf because you know that they will, you know, they'll, they're, they are willing to make decisions that your tried and true officers aren't. Like, there's a story there that you can definitely turn to and do good content with. You just know you're never going to see it. Um by the end, Roe knows that shit's fucked up. She gives Picard her earring, which Picard had said, where's that earring at before? I also like that, you know, he slams her and says, you wanted the earring. You said you were supporting uh, your family and it was your honor. It was your pride. You were making it about you and you just wanted to be different. And you're a bitch. Um, she dips. She takes her security people with her after saying, like, shit's real fucked up. I'm surrounded by spies. I can't trust anybody. I'm bringing you on here and you've got freedom to do stuff right now that I don't have access to. She flies back over to the intrepid. They, they, she can, they conclude their personal conflict in a way that I really liked, which was she opens up just a bit to him, you know, say, I really wish we could have connected, you know, like I really wish whatever we had 30 years ago could have worked and it didn't. And we're, it's too late now, right? Like take this, Try to solve this problem. I can do no more. She flies out her security. Uh, detachment, of course, are changelings. They drop a bomb on the floor. They beam back over to Titan. She's unable or at least unwilling to try to get out of this alive and decides to sacrifice herself, flies over to the Intrepid. The bomb blows up. Really cool effect as it blows the nacelle out. Oh, yeah. They spent some time on the very basic effects. Yeah, like not only does the shuttlecraft hit the nacelle and it blows out, boo, 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 boo. There's a great shot of it like rising up like an angry dragon with the fucking nacelle on fire. The music crescendos at that point in a way that's very threatening. And it's a real great indicator to the audience of like, we have now entered the real plot. <laughs> of yeah. this season like that thing you saw for four episodes before i was a fucking that was the appetizer that was a warm-up that was a nice friendly tng thing now some real shit's happening uh and you know it's a classic frame job the alien the the changelings on uh intrepid are able to use this event to say oh you know we were shot on titan has to go down we're gonna kill everybody black ops nobody survives and Shaw, who has done everything within his power to 
not be a part of the gang to be that outsider guy pointing and snitching on everybody now sees shit's fucked up, yo. And uh, like it or not, Picard is on the right side. And I have now been forced as a bad boy. And I'm going to have to roll with these dudes. And we're going to be on the run. I left Riker's line at the end of the day. It's like, we need to get out of here. They're coming for us. Who? Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do like that Shaw's like, okay, I guess I'm uh, part of the crew now. Sign mm-hmm. me up. <laughs> I've tried. I resisted this for five episodes, mm-hmm. but alas, you you rascals have finally roped me into your schemes. Let's go. Uh, and we do end though with our first indicator of like Jack's abilities are beyond visions, and uh, the changelings confront him on Titan, and he taps into some sort of Jason Bourne mode in his brain, and he John prompt- him. He just promptly murders all four of them. Just. Bloop, blap, bloop. No problems. And uh, it is a they end with him saying, like, I, I got problems, mom. I don't know. There's something going on with me that goes beyond. I'm lonely. Like, I've got things are happening in regards to me. Season three, episode six, The Bounty. This one's uh, Christopher Monfet did the writing. Dan Liu did the directing. And uh, we take the next big step in getting the gang back together. We do. I mean, we do have like that very classic. Uh, Vatic starts uh, executing her own people when they talk back to her moment, I think, in this episode, like classic supervillain thing, right? Like it was kind of almost quaint of like your underling giving you good advice gets murdered. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that trick in like 10 years. Uh, I did like the burgle line. Oh, yeah. So excellent use of the word burgle admiral. That's that's fun comedy that uh, I can enjoy. That's it doesn't need to be wharf being being cringy and zingy all the time. Seven and nine is the next person I want to discuss here. Oh, um, I guess we they did wrap up by finally uniting Worf and and Raffi with the rest of the plot. So that first Turns out Worf's handler was Ro Laren. Correct. So Ro, he was working for Ro. And so now they've got a role Ro's database that was on the earring. And so that's clued them into what is available to be known. And of course, this allows them very early in episode six to like get Raffi and Worf onto the ship so they can be part of the mix. And so this is where we wind up in the the first kind of briefing scene with everybody uh which is mostly being held run by Worf and Raffi like trying to explain what they've known so far and you've actually have Seven and and Shaw now fully part of committed part of the team here so uh everyone is is working together there's actually a moment after the whole burgle thing where where Shaw's like starting to finally like be like yeah that was a good use of the word burgle I'm I'm, He's I'm one up. of the I'm one of Picard's underlings. I can see why you all like this. <laughs> like this is, there's there's joy in this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so seven and nine, or as you may know her, the smartest human being in the galaxy. Correct. Also, Terminatrix mm-hmm. that has shot a lot of people. And even before she workers went, definitely around the warp core. Yeah. Great at shooting Starfleet people. Absolutely. One of the best. Really good at friendly fire. Seven of friendly fire. 
is it because she's not a TNG cast member that they really just backburner her or is she just too good and Metallus understands that she's OP as hell and it's just better to act like she's not and play the long side. game with her like Metallus again we talked about this first episode right he's she's the reason he has his job mm-hmm. yeah they're all they're old friends from when he was a young 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 man running scripts for Voyager as a PA so he's looking to get her regular work right he wants to do the legacy show Jerry Ryan wants to do that with him so this is the TNG last hurrah right you kind of have to let them be the focus because that's how this is going to work and jerry ryan can kind of take a back seat now because the intention is of course for her to be a lead the lead of the show that would succeed this so i think that's the move they made and i think that ultimately works they they, they backseated her not because of like a plot contrivance reason but of we only have so many minutes in an episode and we know who this is about. It's not I guess really it's hard about you because we just watched so much Voyager and seasons. What four through seven, six are basically the seven of nine show. Yeah, that's true. Get, seven is a little less that, but four through six definitely are. Uh, she is the best ever and she is the smartest and the strongest and has the best aim. And she's like data, but edgy with a great body. So seeing her go from Captain Marvel to just the lady that, you know, gets to come in every six scenes, it's kind of jolting, but <laughs> treat that's her a, like a normal actor, <laughs> like instead treat of her like a normal person, instead yeah. of this forthright imperious blonde who asserts uh, her will on all of those around her and who was also shot, shot low so you can get her butt into the frame, yeah, like a different Absolutely. world here. They, they set themselves up for trying to rob the Daystrom station. They've decided we have to go there. Why? Because the changelings stole something from there. We know it's bigger deal than the portal tech, which is already horrific. So I think the only way is we go because we have a, a key that they got from the Vulcan, Vulcan gangster. Yeah. So to get past the AI so we can find out what was stolen. Okay. By that. That's really where it stood out to me that seven and nine is being throttled because the way team that goes over is Worf. What Riker and Raffi, maybe uh, the yeah, it is a bit of a nerfed Mass Effect team It's not the, the, the three man squad I would take uh, for the final mission at uh, at the Citadel. Uh, I will say, though. Uh, in terms of Mass Effect as well, I don't know if you picked up on it. The music is much more Mass Effecty, Cynthia. Yeah, in in episode six and seven in particular, and like it works. And we've already drawn this conclusion that really Mass Effect is the inheritor on a video game level of the whole Star Trek sort of vibe. But it is interesting to kind of see it get get bought back here in the terms of music. Because I don't I don't think that was an accidental choice. That seemed very much in that rhythm on purpose. Um. They go over, they manage to get in, but... Well, let's talk about that real quick. Again, you're putting together your away team mission. The most, basically, Fort Knox. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Tom Barris isn't around to, to be your, your guide to Fort Knox. But you got, I don't know if we'd class uh, 
Hmm, how would you class seven to nine? Miranda Lawson. I would say seven of Edie? nine is is yeah. I would say yeah. Seven of nine is more Edie than anyone else. I mean, that's also played by the imperious blonde woman who played a robot. So mm-hmm. like, there's a lot of commonality there. Sure, there might be some hacking. She's got cybernetics. Uh, instead, you bring Jar Jar Binks. Portrayed about? by Raffi. I was going to say, Raffi is a, a ninja. Don't you want ninjas? She's not a ninja. She yeah, sucks. She adds nothing to this except to provide ex- the person who doesn't know who Data is, I guess. <laughs> like, So they get in. They start going around. Great museum scenes. Here's the bones of, uh, I think I saw Kirk. There's the Genesis correct. device. Mm-hmm. What else was in there? Uh, a uh, Attack a bat- tribbles. Attack tribbles. That's the only things you really see. Uh, and as they're going through in a very clever play, the AI, which is data, hears Riker's voice and does a uh, a challenge to determine his authenticity, right? Because he's aware that there's changelings. They've robbed him. So we can't trust what we see, can't trust what we hear, can't even trust their genetics, right? So how do I know this is Will Riker? I'm going to see if he remembers the my time we met. And I'm going to play into the fact he has perfect pitch because he's a musician to see if he can actually answer the challenge question. And he does. Very nice. The crow uh, hologram took me. Well, actually, it wasn't until Riker laid it out. And I was like, what the fuck are these crows about? Yeah, it's from his dream episode. Mm-hmm. And they got the guy who played Moriarty from back in the day. who's still a working actor, apparently does a fine job. Uh, I honestly did not know he was still alive. He seemed so old then, but apparently he was made up to look old then. So without I, just covering his face in garbage, which is the way they usually did people looking old in early TNG. And so it was nice that, that they brought him back and that he did an excellent job of being the kind of bombastic Moriarty. And sure enough, when the doors open within Daystrom, who should be in there, but a, uh, disassembled B4 and an old looking version of data. And we get a bit of backstory that ties this into season one in a way where it's trying, it's trying real hard to climb up the hill so that you can make sure you have all your legacy characters back because data is the hard one. Data literally has died twice now, died in Nemesis, and then they ran this whole plot in episode one that in season one rather where Data has to die again for some reason, and then they do that. They're like, okay, well, we've got to somehow justify bringing him back again. How do we do that? We'll make it so that Alton Soong, a character we saw at the very end of Picard season one, that's like the unknown love child of of the original Doctor Sununian Soong, decided to make another super android body, but instead of putting himself in it, he puts... Data, lore, B4, lol, and himself in it, and but all at the same time, and then makes it old so that, you know, whoever this ends up being can experience old age, i.e. Brent Spiner's like no to all of that makeup. Including <laughs> setups. Like, I'm going to be... F- I'm going to be an old man set to see now. If you want me to do this, <laughs> I'm not putting on 20 things to make up and I'm not getting on the Stairmaster for 10 seconds. And uh, that is how they're going to climb up this hill. I 
am fine with that. It's dumb that they have to climb it, but it's there, and they find a way. Fine. Data just being Brett Spiner with contact lenses and a wig. I'm fine with that. All this nonsense about I'm going to dump his homicidal fucking twin brother that is responsible for the death of an entire colony also and tried to use Borg mercenaries to go after the Federation. Like it's a big, it's a big question mark. I think I buy it from the perspective that if this is supposed to represent the culmination of the Soongs as a lineage throughout history, which makes sense because, you know, Soong was seen Soong in Enterprise. We've seen Soong in TNG. We've seen Soong even in in prior seasons of Picard. Then you put it all in there, right? Like whatever we're going to wind up with here, it has to constitute all of our lives work over multiple generations so that, you know, this maybe can finally function and, and be the culmination. It's a work of art, right? And they keep saying like, this is a work of art, not science. So I'll, I'll buy it. What happened to lore? He got, was he involved in Picard season one? No, this is the first time Laura has shown up since he got beat in TNG. He was disassembled. That's what they say. They disassembled him after the rogue Borg mercenaries. And then data steals the emotions chip. Correct. Which gets inserted in generations. Yes. So presumably Laura's body would have been on the saucer when it crash landed. Well, I mean, the lore body could have been sent to Daystrom or any other number of places after he was But you never see it actually destroyed. Correct. In fact, they expressively say disassembled as to say not destroyed, but sure. He's in storage somewhere. I always like Laura was one of my favorite characters. Uh, but then again, I was a child watching the show. Um, so he's a synth, which is what Picard is. So does he still have like crazy Android strength or is this just like a, a genuine, authentic human experience? It's from the sound of it, the way they frame it. I think it's supposed to be a genuine human experience aside from his uh, robotic. You know, he's got like an insert in the back of his head. Like there's some still like data E things going he's on here. overhead projector eyes. Yeah, like he's still more robotic than Picard's was. But I think that's because like when we're putting a lot of robot people in here, they might. We might as well give him some robot pieces. Sure, um, but he's not like picking cars up and throwing it then. I don't. I, and I think that that's the intention because they just they weren't going to go in this direction anymore, you know, to, to satisfy Spiner's requests, I'm sure. Sure. If I were to rewrite this, I'd say, all right, we've got a backup code of uh, data. Lore's body was still around. We can dump him in there on that. Or I do like the idea that like, this was kind of the plan all along. Data represented an aspect. Lore represented an aspect. None of these guys were supposed to be the final product, but we realized there was no final product to assemble. It was bringing these two sides of the same coin together, and and that is the finished product. And that and it's ab- a- absent a better plan. I'm dying. I'm I'm going to jam him in here, and you know that's going to be our final testament. 
We'll see if this works. There's a lot of corny shit going on with data in this. Uh, it was not my favorite part of the episode. Uh, watching Brett Spiner try to portray data a third time now, right? Well, fourth, really, because you had the, the, the regular show. You had the movies. You had, I thought, pretty great performances in Picard. Like, all the nonsense of fucking Picard aside, like, the data stuff was good. Yeah, actually, it was like we were kind of pissed that his goodbye was so beautiful for a show that didn't deserve to have that kind of emotion. By the time you get into it here, though, I feel like he's having a hard time nailing the voice down. I don't know if part of him was like really reluctant to go back to doing this again. If like an arm got twisted behind his back or he really wanted money or what. But it seemed like he was having a hard time hitting the notes. I mean, I think part of that is, you know, he's trying to switch between essentially playing two different versions of the character, you know, hard switch between them right in front of you. And it can kind of blend it together a bit. No, I, I thought the I, war stuff was really good. Like just yeah. the way the vo- maybe his voice changed. He's I old. Can, yeah. I mean, like I mean, he does hard wasn't that long ago. I, I need to see what the last two episodes look like when we have like just data data again. Although it's not data data. It is data with extra sp- steps, data it, with, some, with some life uh, attached to it. Some data without, you know, three sentences of data and then five sentences of lore and then just just straight. Portrayal of one character, not this fragmented thing. Uh, while, while these adventures are going on, there's two other things happening on the ship. One, there's more Picard Jack bonding because Jack is they suspect has inherited uh, Picard's fatal brain thing from season one. And we also have them getting made. The Titan gets made outside the station right away. So they have to flee because if they get tagged by these ships. They're going to be able to follow them wherever they go. And they ultimately decide that their next best option is to head to the fleet museum for assistance to try and find some way to extract their robbery team. Uh, and when they head to the fleet museum, a it's the old star base, which is neat, but that's what they take the old star base and put it here and then have a bunch of rings around it that have like legendary starships in it. Some of which we see up close. And of course, who should be leading the fleet museum, but Commodore Jordy LaForge. I really like LeVar Burton's performance in this and he Jordy gets to come up a few times in Star Trek, most notably timeless when we see Captain LaForge of the gap. No, the Odyssey. Uh, Challenger Challenger. That's right. Galaxy class ship that the USS Challenger. So we've seen Jordy pop up a few times between movies, a little bit of Voyager and some what ifs here and there at this point. Jordy's a family man. He's got two daughters, one of which serves uh, at the museum with him. And the other one is actually conveniently enough stationed on the Titan. And Jordy's conflict is good. And it's I want to run to your side. I want to help you. I want to relive the good old days. But if even half of what you're saying is true, you're dead and everybody who helped you is dead. And I got to worry about my girls. Yeah. And as bad as I want to help you relive the good old days, I got to worry about them. 
It makes sense. It's he's a perfect example of what we talked about when these guys feel like they have actually aged 30 years as their characters. Jordy has been a captain. He's in fact promoted beyond being a captain. This man has been a leader. He's married. He has grown adult children that he is still protective of. He still does the thing with his hands. He still acts and talks the same way you'd expect Jordy to talk, but as a man of, of, of accomplishment, of confidence, this is, this is no longer the enthusiastic kind of young blood. This is, this isn't as a, 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 a officer as accomplished as all of his prior bosses. In fact, he is out, he outranks Riker and Worf, you know, like he's, he made flag rank. Those two stopped at captain. And I liked that his attitude is much more taciturn, much more like I have things to lose. I have to keep them in mind. I can't just do what I want to do and be your grease monkey. And that ultimately obviously gives him an arc here in this episode. My only complaint is that it is super fast because they just don't have time to develop it because they have so much other stuff to do. And, you know, we have to do the whole plot and then give like space. Deanna's got to show up. You know, like we've got to finish all the data stuff. Jordy's going to play in that, obviously, but he's got to kind of just hit the the gas on all the family stuff and just wrap it up in this episode because they don't have too much more time. As quickly as they do it, I don't think they do it disservice. Uh, it's strong. He carries it. You, you see it. It's an easy concept to understand. And LeVar Burton, um, despite directing some of the worst Star Trek episodes of all time, <laughs> <laughs> shows us shows us that he understands what the point is actually supposed to be. Yeah, he no- understands the product. Even if he maybe doesn't get the best directorial assignments, the man knows Trek and he knows how is where his character is supposed to be with this stuff. Lots of great but- stuff going on in this episode. You got Data kind of cooking in the background. You've got this great thing going on between Picard and Jordy where Picard's trying to sell him on the mission. You've got the way team in danger back on Daystrom station. And then you get the visual eye candy buffet of all of the cool fucking ships. And we get to go on a nice slow tour with them, courtesy of Jack Crusher and seven to nine chilling out on the bridge, which might as well just be a fucking date of them flipping through the channels and checking out all the hot ships of yesteryear. Jack Crusher in this episode successfully flirts with seven of nine and then goes and then successfully flirts with, with Sydney LaForge. The man has charm. And the, the one here where, you know, going through the old ships, like, Hey, there's the defiant. We get a little of the DS nine theme in the background. Then let's see a classic constitution class ship. We've got the New Jersey and like the TOS era look. Oh, and we got the enterprise a, we get a movie theme. Right. Clean lines. I'm a constitution class man. But then, of course, we finish with a shot, a high def shot, a beautiful shot of the USS Voyager. The Voyager theme comes up. We get some seven of nine kind of reflection. It's a very nice scene. We also touch on the fact that you've got the bird of prey. Yeah. USS Bounty. I remember that. It was hard to find because it was like cloaked at the bottom of the oh. Shin. Hey, wait Thank a second. Quick. I'm gonna go see if uh, the, this this girl I'm trying to 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 nail is up for committing some larceny with me. <laughs> oh, although Big L, unfortunately for the for the LaForge sisters, and that one is a professional actor and one is not, and it's very clear which one is which. You know, 
it doesn't really stand out that bad. And if LeVar Burton's terms to do this show were that uh, you're going to involve my real daughter in it. Fair enough. She does a great job. She does fine. You know, let her portray Raffi. (laughs) You know, that would be an improvement. LeVar Uh, Burton's not professional actor daughter acts circles around Michelle Hurd. Not even close. Not even close. Sydney continues to grow on me as I continue to watch this. Like her actress is really good. And, you know, she's playing the plucky newbie Starfleet person in a way that's doesn't make me want to throw up in my mouth at all. Yeah. And the more she's on screen and the more she's involved, it's actually a, a bonus. And sure enough, Jack Crusher throws the Picard charm on and manages to to get her to uh, go rob that bird of prey real quick. And we know that they've robbed that bird of prey because the Titan cloaks. <laughs> and it's side note, Jack Crusher grows on me exponentially each episode as well. Uh, there's some stuff. There's some hokey shit going on with him that I think would have been easy to roll your eyes and like scoff at. This guy sells it, though. Um, But yeah, rather than stealing the fucking cloak off the Defiant, they get it off the bounty. Why does this museum have a fully operational cloak that is against all of the treaties and everything else? Yeah. I do. I do like the, you know, how many he goes through all of the problems. The fact that the Titan just cloaked causes you've broken all of these treaties. Do you have any idea of what this is going to cause? And Picard just goes, eh, put it on my tab. <laughs> like we're in, we're in deep on this one, Jordy. Come on. Yeah. They're going to kill me. All right. Let's, I don't give a fuck. We got a five star rating right now, buddy. You, you said it yourself, right? We are running from the helicopters right now. Are you in? Or are you out? <laughs> like, Let's go. Uh, ultimately things go very poorly over at Daystrom station. Uh, not everybody's able to beam out. They get data, but Picard or Riker gets tagged and caught behind and ends up in the hands of, uh, evil changeling lady. So they're going to have to contend with that. Oh, and they revealed that, you know, they've also captured Deanna. That's a big deal there at the end is Vatic already has Deanna. And so Will and Deanna are. Captured together on the Shrike. The Shrike. Season three, episode seven, Dominion, written by Jane Mags, directed by Deborah Campmeyer. Probably Sorry. the worst episode of the season, unfortunately. Um, not bad by any stretch, uh, but definitely the one where the strain of trying to do all of the things they're trying to do starts to show. Um the sloppiest in terms of writing some plot holes, uh, some things I imagine they would like to have back if they could kind of redo it. That said though, starts with another surprise cameo. Hey, Tuvok. How you been, buddy? You know, makes sense, right? We got, we have not yet explored why seven of nine has not been able to involve her homies. All of Picard's homies are involved. But we know Seven's got homies. So where are they at? And that's what's happening here is they are before moving any deeper because now they know shit's going to go down at Frontier Day. The entire fleet's going to be there. Commodore LaForge super against this. We also find out that all of the ships are networked, 
which I'm sure is going to come in as some sort of like, we're going to put a virus out there and it's going to pass between all the ships because all yeah, the ships Battlestar are Battlestar Galactica shit right there. Um, so oh, they, got, also, they also know the Changeling stole Jean-Luc Picard's original body. So between that and Jack, there's some sort of biometrics that's going to go on. They don't know what exactly going to happen. They know it's not good. They got to get this all figured out before the end of the world comes in the form of whatever the changelings are going to do during this. But right now they're trying to drum up some support. You can sit there and say, all right, well, where's the fucking all the Romulan favors and stuff that Picard should have from all of his dealings in Picard season one and whatever the fuck else happens. The Romulans, the Klingons, like there should be a lot of people that are super anti uh, Dominion founder changelings, right? Mm -hmm. But you know what the scope of the TV show is. And whereas it was unforgivable for Picard to do anything he did in season one without involving the rest of the crew, here it's like, you know, you got the you got the the core people together. I get why you're not going to go too deep. And I'll take the Tuvok shout out while I have it. Unfortunately, it's not the real Tuvok. It's evil changeling lady. She uh, shifts over into Riker and says, I'm fucking dead. Uh, you know, what's the fun of superpowers if you're not going to use them to emotionally abuse other people? I think that the changeling that they're talking to is not Vatic. It's another infiltrator into Starfleet that's taken Tuvok's place. I don't mm -hmm. think it's intended to be Vatic, but yeah, the, it, you get Tim Russ. He's Captain Tuvok. There's there's a is he real? Is he real? They they make you think he's real. They even bring in the Voyager music uh, only because Seven of Nine is rope doped at the last second, captured, gotten him to put his guard down, thinking he's he has fooled them. Only that no Seven of Nine has outsmarted him and gotten him to blunder into some shit he would never have actually. I love that into. it was anti colonar protests. Yeah, and that they used the fact that there was a whole episode where her, you know, her thing was cured by a, a mind meld from him when he, she had all the split personalities that, you know, this, you would have known that. You helped me fix it, but you didn't. It's a good use of the two-factor authentication, shows how slick Seven of Nine is, and also answers, this is why none of the Voyager homies are involved, because we have reached the limit of who we can get into this without running into, uh, you know, among us replacement people. There you go. Uh, not a lot of new locations that we're going to be hitting here. We're uh, in budget control mode right now. Absolutely. Shaw's not in a uniform anymore. Neither is seven and nine, which they're in their jackets. They're in the field jackets, the fat man jackets, as we will see by the time everybody sits down around the table at the end of yeah, episode. I, eight. Those are the, I feel like those they, are the Peter had... jacket there. They had Shaw and Seven wear them so that they wouldn't seem out of place that all of their elderly crew are wearing them, you know? Mm -hmm. So, like, even though sh you know, they could probably just continue to wear their normal uniforms and it looks just as as uh, flattering as always. Uh, well, we don't want we don't want the rest of everybody to stick out. So everyone's getting into the field jackets now. Titan's like got to get. I'd yeah. buy one of those. I'm sure they'll be available for sale, Joe. Don't worry. OK, uh, good. <laughs> They have to go get Titan into a pickle. And that's going to happen courtesy of some compromised command codes. What was going on there exactly? I, I didn't rewatch that scene. That's 
a distress signal or that's a Federation broadcast that captains can make to alert others to their presence. But in doing so, kind of secretly communicating the fact that shit's fucked up, yo. Yeah, so uh, it was a compromised prefix code used by captains in distress to ping their designated starships, giving the enemy the ship's location, but letting Starfleet know the captain has been caught and compromised. That is the explanation. So the, it is it gives up your location, but by transmitting it, you're communicating the SOS. So basically everyone knows where you are, but your team knows like you're in trouble. Presumably they'll respond. That's what it's supposed to. It's like a desperation move. Riker gives that up, of course, because there is a threat that you are going to assist us or I'm going to kill your wife in front of you. Luckily, for all the people that get executed in the next couple episodes uh, for Riker, Troy was not among those killed. So off the Titan goes and it does not go well for it. Oh, also of note, before Ro Laren departed the show, she ordered like three quarters of Titan's crew to be relocated over to the. Uh, was the Intrepid? Correct. So this is, again, to cover for the fact there's not a lot of extras on the show because I couldn't afford them. So there's like there's no one at the Fleet Museum. That's like another thing. There's like no explanation why there's no one at the Fleet Museum at all. Right. Just can't afford it. Listen, you got to spend your money on extras or badass shots of Voyager and other uh, hero ships. You put your money in the right place. No complaints. So they are hiding at a, a. Another DS9 reference, which is uh, the Chintaka scrapyard. And they come up with this plan. And they sort of, ex- the, part of it's very ingenious and they explain it well. And part of it, they don't explain it all. Like one key part of it. They're trying to get Vatic to take the bait that they are incapacitated so that she will expose herself in some fashion and allow them to rope a dope her into a prison scenario. And the first piece of this that is done quite well is the fake log from the VSS Taplana, which is supposed to be a Vulcan starship in Starfleet's service, which I thought was a very interesting continuity note. So USS uh, is the designation, I guess, for Earth ships, where VSS would be the designation for Vulcan ships. And they plant this fake log using, you can hear Tavine's voice, Right. This is the science officer on the Titan giving doing this log with like other officers in the background. You can kind of tell are like doing the color commentary of this battle against the Titan. And they find another a Vulcan ship to kind of put themselves up against to make it look like they're both dead in space. And then after putting that fake log into place, they try and tempt Vatic to come over to capture her presumably they intended to have a scene that explained why they plugged in data. They don't, they don't explain what part data has in all of this. Maybe it's to create the force field thing, you know, cause like his Android brain timing would be perfect, but because they don't explain it, the problem, the problem is that the plot falls apart because he's plugged in and they haven't actually, expressed to the audience why he needed to be plugged in in the first place because he wasn't he was just in sickbay in a stasis field unable to move just kind of talking switching between data and lore before as lore represents a major threat which Jordy very clearly communicates like we know lore is bad news 
Lore has brought the ship to its knees many times before, plugging him into the brain of this ship. Really bad idea, as they will find out, because of course, Lore takes over, and right at the worst moment possible, Lore starts fucking up all of Picard's plans and gives Vatic the chance to start running some hot dick. Back to Data and uh, Picard in the previous episode where they're asking Data, like, hey, you you were the security system over at Daystrom. Like, uh, also, even that, too, like, conceptually, it's cool. Realistically, and they intimate that this Daystrom is like a Section 31 black site, basically, right? Correct. It's like some SCP shit. Like, we're going to take one of the monsters here and we're going to use it as like free labor. (laughs) We can't just use a regular computer. It's we're going to use, yeah, like fucking goody two shoes, Picard's right hand man. We're going to plug him in. What could possibly Um, go wrong? It's like, yeah, put an SCP in charge of the of the whole facility. Seems good. Yeah. Uh, This is the relationship between Picard and Data that should have been featured in episode one. And that like heightened sense of like data was like my son. And I cared about him more than anything else. And I'm, it's the only family I care about. I'm going to become completely consumed with this fucking plot. No. Yeah. You're absolutely, we complained about this back in the day. Like this makes no sense. They were the main characters in the movies together, but Picard didn't care for data in any particular way, aside from an, I am a senior officer mentoring a younger officer and trying to nurture this life form as a good Starfleet officer should not because like he's my precious baby. Right. It makes no fucking sense. He's a good friend, not my precious baby. Yeah. So the relationship in here and it's hard for me not to nitpick and be like, you know what? Why didn't Picard, you know, fall over crying and hug him? Oh my God. I thought I'd lost you. Like, no, this this is the way they should have been acting. Also suspiciously absent is the fact that nobody at any point has told Data like, hey, you got kids. They're fucking badass ninjas. Hey, by the way, we're fighting these fucking changelings. They're a real handful. Why don't we have your daughter bring all her badass robot ninja friends over here? They could probably help us out. Yeah, they owe Picard a solid for saving them. I'm sure they could be handy. Saving the entire galaxy from the Reapers, if you'll recall. This was this was something actually Terry Metallus himself brought up as a, a shortcoming to say, like, of the many things that fell victim to the lack of budget, exactly what you're describing could not occur, even though he did want he his original script, you know, like plotting for the whole season included it. Doge um, was Doge her name? Uh the was Doge the one that died? Died? I don't or, know. Whatever the Issa Brona's you're asking uh, me to go through the recycling bin of my brain. I deleted that shit a long fucking time. I was actually thinking about all this when I was like doing prep for the the show. And then I, was, I had a real good laugh thinking about the tal tal shiar shiar and the fucking <laughs> Lannister brother and sisters like dry humping each other. That fucking stupid boot knife that killed the, the guy whose entire personality is I am Hispanic. <laughs> like. Yeah, it was awful. Uh, and Metallus said, like, I definitely wanted to include something that, like, communicated to Data that he's got, like, offspring. He's got, like, literal successors. There's a whole race of synthetics that his 
you know, that DNA exists. has fucking spawned whatever the fuck that was. I, I mean, in, but he said, like, I just couldn't afford to do any of that. So he, they didn't. So I buy it. You know, you're doing what you can here. Um, the great. There's a great scene of Jordy unleashing his emotions, trying to communicate past lore to data when lore is taken over. Probably just. It's best, his best moment of the season, you know, just explaining what Data's death did to him because he never got to express that, right? Like, again, Picard season one, if anybody loved and had this super bond with Data, it was not Picard. It was LaForge. You get a good taste of that here. There's two emotional outpourings. One is uh, Jordy trying to reason past lore stranglehold over Data. And the second is once Data has fully taken over. Jordy is saying, I've missed you. You mean a lot to me, blah, blah, blah. And the the hard part of that is for as hard as LeVar Burton delivers. I don't feel that Brett Spiner hits the right beats in reciprocating the end of the scene. I, I think his the emotional state data is in is still just not quite as they actually make a plot point of it by the end of the series of like that. His emotional state is still a work in progress. So I guess I'm forgiving of it in that moment because I kind of know what happens. But uh, I agree, like he he's much more heartfelt and he's a little bit more, you know, just like happy to be here, which is a bit of a mismatch. But at least they play into it later on, you know, like at least it's not just like, oh, this was just a bad take and we left it in. You're being like, very kind intended. of Brett Spiner. That's that's very I charitable am. of you. I am. <laughs> Uh, so the great plans that they had to get these changeling motherfuckers under control goes real sideways. Uh, Picard captures changeling captain in sick bay. They get a force field around her. They're trying to interrogate and find out what the fuck's going on. Why do they want Jack? You got, uh, Bev and, and Picard kind of tag teaming her. Probably get Amanda Plummer's best scene in there where she's like explaining her backstory and that like, yeah, I'm a monster because, you know, first and foremost, your organization tried to buy a weapon, my people. So fuck you for that. And which is very true. I mean, as a mild DS9 spoiler, but uh, accurate uh, beef that they have. And two. Uh, me and my homies got caught up in, in whatever Section 31's bullshit was, and uh, we just got tortured all the time. And they deliver it in a way that makes you feel it. Like, it's just goo, right? Changelings are just these goo people. But they're getting, like, burned, they're getting, like, soldered, getting chemicals dumped on them. You get, like, the pain. You get her narration. Comes together nice. Uh been there done that man that's a that's a real i'm a monster i'm the monster you made i'm frankenstein's creation i'm a reflection of your own dark soul blah 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 yeah true i will say it's not a new idea been there done that all right uh this is jack from mass effect and maybe that's why all this was like whatever to me because jack did it a lot better than than how it's presented here. So it's kind of yawn, whatever. By the end, force fields go down and 
Picard and Beverly Crusher. Beverly being a super badass that has killed many people this season. Mm-hmm. Both point blank unloading on evil changeling lady as she scoots along the floor, then goes vertical and like goes up into a ceiling vent and just escapes. Inexcusable. I'm sorry. Was there no other way to pull this escape scene? Like that she was couldn't go T 1000 and have like tentacles knock the face yeah. out of her hand as she runs away and jumps through a fucking vent in the floor. Inexcusable. Like it sticks out so hard when you see it of like, Oh, okay. So these guys just can't shoot now for some reason. They can't just hit the giant blob with their rapid fire phase pistols. Give me a fucking break guys. Like I don't, the, is that you just didn't have time to do anything else? She just did this. Just made made them look like complete jabronis. Got it. Look, got it. Like dumb choice. They have some plans to lure her out. There's a little uh <laughs> a little couple minutes of some home alone set on the Titan where you know people are running in, falling to traps other assorted nonsense but by the end we see that like whatever jack's concerns are uh and they've kind of been hinting that this guy is a changeling whatever he's got going on appears to be much much more we've got some sort of possession we've got astral projections we've got marionetting this dude's all fucked up the End result here, you know, Shaw gainly tries to stop the changelings from taking the bridge, but fails. And Shaw gets sure, beat up a lot. He, does, he got a, he got an archer sized head wound. You see that shit? Like, no, because Archer usually just gets a little like schmutz on his head. This guy, he's been thrown over the bridge. He busted all his fucking ribs up. He's getting his ass kicked here and there. Like his rider and his contract was like i will do this show but only if i get beat up every other episode to a point where i might die uh, todd Stan- well I, to be honest every actor on this show has done like a lot of press a lot of podcasts in particular because it's very accessible to trek fans uh todd stashwick uh he's great he's a lot of fun to listen to he says like this is a dream come true he's been a star trek fan his whole life you know like he's done nerd sci-fi stuff you know, that's been his acting world. And the fact that he got to be like, he got to act against Patrick Stewart and be super aggro to him was apparently like they bonded over that because he was going for it. He's like, this is a dream come true. I'm going to like get to be antagonistic to like one of my acting idols. Right. And get to play against him in that way. And uh, I, I really hope he gets to do more stuff. You know, like he's, He's really understands the assignment and he really loves Star Trek. Also cool scene between him and Jordy because we've established that Shaw is a engineered first and foremost. So him getting to cross paths with like the miracle worker of this generation uh, being a big fanboy moment for him was really cool. He's like a bashful nerd and it might be like the best justification for him like being part of like the team briefing. (laughs) Like later on, like I'm on the team now. <laughs> like her, my buddy Jordy, I'm buddies with Jordy LaForge. Boys, we did it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, also, uh, Jonathan Frakes did the Shuttle Pod podcast, the one that Colin Schneer and um, the guy who plays Reed <laughs> do. And he said what I said uh, a couple weeks ago, which is 
Terry Metalis literally talked Patrick Stewart and all of this just by telling him, like, your choices didn't work. Mine will work. Do it my way. Let's go. Mm, that's some shop talk there. It was. And it's, it, it's to his internal credit, it, it apparently worked. So, uh, And then last, that finally brings us to uh, the last episode we're reviewing today, which is episode eight. Episode eight, season three, written by Matt Okamura, directed by Deborah Campanier. Surrender. This picks back up where we had left off, and that is Titan in a real bad place. Vatic is in control. It's got the rest of his her her changeling friends there. Got the whole bridge crew captured to in the classic starting to murder members of the crew. While lighting a cigarette in the captain's chair, um, it this phrase is used to describe a different character in the show. But Vatic is very arch. <laughs> like she is, if you if you're getting, you got a big a, a big hammy villain to play against Patrick Stewart, right? Like Shakespearean actor versus Shakespearean villain, and she's going the whole distance with it. It's just too, a little too much, but yeah. I really loved the shot that starts. This was like from the observation dome comes down to her in the chair. She's lighting a cigarette. You know, she is slowly murdering a few members of the Titans crew in front of the bridge crew to just kind of prove credibility of her monstrosity. Her Very monologuing nice. over the murders going on elsewhere in the ship because she turns off the lights, she turns off internal communications, and it's whatever remains of the Titan crew just being hunted down and murdered. Uh, and this is what I touched on in our last Enterprise. Does this feel start? Does this feel realistic? Yeah. Does this seem like something you know a space terrorist would do? Absolutely. Does it feel Star Trek? Is this adding value? Is this something you want to see? I think hunting down and murdering junior Starfleet officers like dogs in the hallway. It's too much. I think it's just right if you in this circumstance to really drive home both a threat and that this guy you know, that there's no saving Vatic, right? Like you might have felt bad for Vatic last episode, tortured and all that stuff. Dispose of those feelings now. Vatic is still the villain. Vatic is irredeemable. Vatic's got to go. And, and while they're showing this like horrific stuff going on, you know, this this horror movie in the hallways, she's like conducting an orchestra. And it's just this is where I really start being done with this character. It like you said, it, it's too much. It's annoying. Also, the crew is portrayed to like cowering and these guys are just walking around corners and nobody it it's a little it's it's too much it's it's starts getting pretty silly and the whole time it's going on i'm just like all right just fucking plug data in already let them turn the power on and start fucking dudes up with force fields let me see some people get transported out into space god damn it doesn't happen by transporter but sure enough <laughs> get your wish <laughs> you do uh, the also Vatic's pronunciation of Picard over its nails on a fucking chalkboard. Oh, something I do like about the bridge crew of the Titan is that you can tell just from like we get a lot of like close shots of them in this episode. 
the way that their 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 mannerisms are seems to be befitting their characters particularly well. Like the the tactical officer, the Bajoran tactical officer, he's very like at attention, staring straight ahead. Uh, you know, you've got like the junior science officer who's kind of cowering and emotional. You've got uh, the I'm sorry, I guess that's the uh, engineering station um, uh, on the bridge is helmed by the kind of like female ensign alien. And then you've got Tavine, who's the the science officer who's being a Vulcan, just kind of like serenely kind of looking around. This is something that our uh, red letter media pointed out. And I really I really liked that these actors kind of really figured their roles out despite not having a ton of screen time. You know, certainly the focus is never on them, but they're present enough and the show does enough that you kind of care about what's happening to them and the, you, the, their characters feel kind of fleshed out uh, so, such that you can care about them. I can only assume this is a direct result of discovery and the absolute disservice they did in taking forever to even fucking say the name of the people in the bridge outside of Lorca, uh, Burnham and Tilly. Yeah, like we got to never do that again. Yeah. We we accidentally did a season of Star Trek when we didn't explain who the main characters were. What an oops. You know, like we're never going to live that down. Sure. But no, uh, actors all do a great job here. And for uh, it being too much hunting down the, the crewmen in the hallways like dogs, the execution scenario on the bridge was appropriate because again this is being broadcast to the ship and the goal here is jack this blood's going to be on your hands you need to come up here and uh, present yourself and picard's response to this to jack is like do not do that we don't negotiate with terrorists and also once you go to her she is going to kill everybody on this ship <coughs> uh this is a no win and we are fucked there's got to be another way before we we see kind of the, the stages of how they try to deal with that. We do actually cut back to the Shrike where we get another long awaited scene. And that is uh Troy and Riker hanging out post post getting their asses kicked slash tortured. And this is a great cup pair of scenes ultimately between the two of them, because we've never really gotten to see the Riker and Troy married life. We had the one episode of Picard season one where they showed up, but they weren't, really the focuses of that and here it's really about them about what's they they certainly talk a lot about that they've lost their son which was a plot point in season one but importantly it's about their relationship it's about their marriage and you know i know these two actors know each other very well professionally i imagine they have had the conversation of like where would our characters be they've done all these uh, the stuff together and all these conventions for years and years, right? I'm sure it's come up. Like if we had the opportunity to revisit, what would it be like? Well, how, you know, how would this, this banter work? They've had all the opportunity to continue to have chemistry with each other in a way that going into this conversation, I believe that these two have been married for 30 years. You know, like they feel like it. It feels like Troy and Riker after three decades of marriage. Very well, very well done. It's good, but the show stealer here is understanding that not only are they dealing with the grief of a child they've lost, but Troy coming in as a counselor and trying to treat her husband 
and in the process of doing that, uh, kind of abusing her telepathic powers. Yeah, drove him away. Like, like using like a quietus on him, basically creating this unnatural calmness in him, numbing him. Uh, and the result of which being uh, an alienating force between them that Riker ultimately wanted to escape. So then it's not only have I lost my uh, child, but I have driven my husband away. I have failed uh, as a family member. I have failed professionally, and that makes everything so much more worse. Uh, there's some fun. Th- they reconcile, though. Like, it's an important part of it is he's given her the old Riker charm, right? Like, the change only came to look like you to, to get me, uh, you know, who's very convincing. Good in bed, bad at pizza, you know, like there's great stuff there. And when they they ultimately bind back together, right? He, she, she she's Imzadi in the end, like just like she was he's at the very beginning. And, you know, like you only they really only have this one set of scenes to really do that in the whole series. And they make the use the most use of that time. It's great. And uh, what else is great is the guy coming to finally kill him off. But before he can do anything, look at that. Someone someone going in for that melee kill. uh, I do love that Worf is like, Deanna, I have thought of you very much (laughs) since last week we saw each other, you know, because they dated in season seven. He's sweet on her. I've Mm -hmm. thought many times of how you looked in those leather pants when we did the Western uh, holodeck episode with my with my son every day i've considered how your how how, how flattering those were you like, are permanent uh you're a hall of fame spank bank <laughs> Riker's like right here in front of me huh mm-hmm. <laughs> like, so what's what's you dude i li- i like the Riker uh wharf banter uh during the season of like Rikers were trying to you know joke with him and needle him a little bit and he's kind of like stiff now because he spent all this time working on his like monastic sort of focus. Yes. He's been busy on Dagobah confronting his demons in the, the, the cave of the dark side. It's like Riker's like, no fun. What is this? <laughs> Turn into a square. Yeah. Um, when does Raffi have her stupid fucking scene? Well, like when she like does the knife fighting, it's in the end of this episode. Ugh. Yeah, we'll, we'll skip over that. Whatever. Raffi's there, too. Uh, they, they break him <laughs> out of jail. Uh, they they also find that Picard's corpse is there and that the piece of his brain that had had the brain problem has been taken out. And they that's their plot. Uh, back on Titan, the, the thrust is this. First, Jack tries to hijack the brain of the tactical officer to reclaim the ship using Picard's super duper override code as an admiral. And gets caught. Yeah, the lag was too bad on that connection. And because he got caught, that's when Vadix decides to execute someone. There's a lot of tension because you don't actually know which one's going to get you. You know one of these poor bastards are getting maced, right? And it's going to be one of the ones with lines. You got to make him feel it. Not going to be seven of nine. Not going to be seven of nine. Not going to be Shaw. It's going to definitely be the tactical officer, the engineering officer, uh, you know, or the science officer because they're the ones that have spoken. And sure enough, it's I'm going to shoot him. I'm going to shoot her. I'm going to shoot him. I'm going to shoot her. Oh, I'm going to shoot the one I haven't threatened yet, which is Tavine. And you feel bad. You're like, oh, I liked her. You know, like, uh, shit. (laughs) 
That's what you get for not having that uh, Vulcan helmet hair haircut. Go to deflect it right off. Yeah. And after that, they're like, what do we do now? Okay, now we got to make the desperation play. And the desperation play is we're going to go back down to engineering and we're going to talk to to Jordy and we're going to see if we can just like get data to like unfuck himself and then take the ship over. Uh, the two factor authentication when they come down to engineering is that uh, Picard insults uh, Jordy's taste in wine. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, that's you. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and. Uh, they resolved to just say, okay, well, we're going to lower all the shields inside Data's brain, and hopefully Data wins. That's all the only play we got left. Also, I'm going to send Jack up there with what looks like a thermal detonator to like, buy us some time with threats. Jack gets up there, pops it out. Uh, the entire crew escapes except for, to like, you know, behind the blast doors of the conference room conference room except for seven of nine there's some line in there like uh there's nothing seven can do to help the situation again i'm like dude this is seven of nine this is like the this this is the mary not mary sue but this is the most capable human being in the world in the world this this is the person that should have been involved in everything the the exact line vatic uses which is interesting is of all the people on the ship it is the most appropriate that you witness this and that that goes unremarked otherwise. I keep wondering at this point <clears throat> if the Borg are going to end up being involved, if Jack is some sort of uh, changeling Borg hybrid, because the tentacles they keep laying over the screen when they are talking about the red door, uh, they don't seem organic. There, there's something techno about them. And they, other than Wolf 359, any sort of discussion about the Borg whatsoever has been completely absent uh, in this. And this should be, you know, a big fucking deal, especially in the wake of uh, Picard season one. But anyways, down in uh, engineering or whatever it is, do we see main engineering at any point? No, like, do we, we see the work court? They don't have a set for that, so they couldn't build one. No, you got the techno closet where sometimes it's where the poison gas is being leaked. This time it's where data's hooked up. And they say, we got to we got to risk this. We got to take the partitions down. We got to let lore and data fight over who gets to be king of the hill. And we got to hope to God that data is going to be the stronger one. It's a little paint by numbers. You know, data. Schmaltzy. Yeah. Data confronts like they're in cyberspace, but it looks like they're standing in like the Windows 95 <laughs> default desktop background. Lore's talking shit and Data's like, oh, I give up. You know, here's all my most important memories. I'm going to hand them to you. You're going to be touching it, getting your fingerprints all over it. I'm going to put in fucking virus on you or whatever it is. And here, here li- literally, let me give you spot. Right. right. We're doing it fucking all thing that nobody wants. This goddamn cat. Here's, uh, of course, our obligatory shout out to Tasha Yar. And the, the, the rope of dope here is that data purposefully enticed lore into taking all of his memories because what is identity, but memory. And by taking all of his memories, he has in fact subverted his own identity to data, thus making data, uh, the primary personality within the construct. That is the explanation. It is a little thin, but I will 
I will buy it at retail knowing I'm supporting a business I like. You know, like it's <laughs> again, I, I would like to there have been more emphasis of data of saying, I understand now we cannot exist as separate. I, I, I cannot destroy you. We must integrate. We are we are two parts to the same product. And right. I cannot be whole without you. And if I let you win, you will be incomplete and defective. Like we need to do this. Whatever. What what you get is fine. Data comes out on top and goes, all right, bitches, it's me time. Again, some of this cheeky, zingy, this is your captain speaking. You, you changeling fucks, you're in trouble now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm angry and we are going to be killing you. Mm-hmm. And indeed, the we find out the thermal detonator is not a thermal detonator, but a mobile... For, uh, temporary force Shield field, it, yeah. which was neat because it is uh, the way that Jack and Seven of Nine will prevent themselves from getting sucked into space because data opens with the evacuation doors of the bridge, something we've never seen before. And that is apparently a big old set of doors behind the view screen uh, that goes ahead and, and issue and uh, ushers uh, the couple changelings left on the bridge along with with Vatic shortly the after space. Nemesis. Over at Starfleet Engineering, you know, the top ship designers are sitting around and like, listen, guys, the last generation of console IED explosives, they're good. But honestly, the the console's just blowing up and scorching people's faces. It's stale. We're stagnating as a department. We need a new, exciting way to kill next level. Yeah. Bridge crew members. And vacuum go. of space. We need to do them like Harry, the original Harry Kim was done. <laughs> suck them right out. You know, suck them right out. Jones, give me your best option. Uh, big old barn doors, right? <laughs> right in the, the screens, the screens, a door and it opens and it just sucks everybody out. You know what? Lieutenant Jones, that's Commander <laughs> Jones thinking right there. That's Commander <laughs> Jones thinking. <laughs> I want every computer surface in this ship to be an exterior port hatch and at any moment might suck the person in front of it out into the cold, dark throes of space. Pretty dumb that it exists, but it is a pretty nice way to just finally shove Vatic out of the show. Uh, Vatic being, I don't know, an old lady. It's interesting for being the bad guy that she does zero physical violence done to her, minus the slapdash gun play. The failures to shoot her. Um, Picard never gets to punch her. Nobody shoves her. She just uh, gets sucked out into space in a uh, special effect T-1000 I guess you might... You could you could count when she's communicating with her whoever her boss is, who's like some figure that kind of looks ambiguous, uh, definitely unpleased and seems to be torturing her. But it's all done by effect, right? Like there's no actual stunt. Right. There's there's no punching. And I can't think of any other Star Trek villain that has completely avoided any sort of uh, fisticuffs with the main cast. Me neither. Me neither. But again, Vatic works. It's just too much. It's just I you you that bowl of ice cream was just too much content, right? Too I much chocolate syrup on it. I just needed half of that. 
and we would have been good. But unfortunately, I got too much. But she has some point. Raffi comes down the hallway. (laughs) The goons who in every single scene we have seen are carrying rifles and shooting people. Somehow she encounters six of them, not a pistol to be seen, no rifles anywhere. And she's got her fucking, you know, two ninja swords and beats the hell out of all these guys and kills everybody. And except for one, like Worf does tag one. He's got the only one with the type two phaser, too, which. So the phasers, man, like why move away from the particle beam weapons to this? The only thing I can think is it's the sound, right? That that gunshot effect. When you pull the trigger, there's an explosion and violence happens, usually a disintegration of some sort. As much as I love the type two, it does make for boring fights and having like the particle weapon style fight allows you to do things that are more kinetic and more interesting effects wise and more interesting sound wise. So the fact that it is in the end only uh Worf who's using the type two and it's basically as an execution device. Okay. I kind of get why they made that choice. I kind of like it too. Like he almost, what if the type two he uses was like the first season dust buster? Because like you're saying, he uses that as like an execution, like cleanup device to like kill people every <laughs> down. When the fact he's just dust busting. I mean, he does say that he has killed thousands of enemies since they last all sat together and considered sending their heads to each and every one of them. And, but was informed that would be passive aggressive. So, you know, he's had a lot of bodies to clean up, you know, that dustbuster has been working. Uh, things conclude this episode with everybody sitting around the table. Finally, the gang's all here. Everybody is in uniform. Minus Picard. They all have their old fat man uniforms on, which is the one that I would be wearing because I would not be able to fit in the sleek, sexy uniforms either. Same. (laughs) You got Shaw there. Uh, Shaw's not in the last scene. No, no, they're not. So it's only the TNG crew in that last briefing scene at the very end. It's it. You can check it. It is just Picard, Riker or seven either. No seven. It's just them. Big kids and table only. So the big kids are having a conversation and uh, it reassures everybody that like, hey, it was so hard for me to like, you know, for me to, to leave all of you to go run off with my love child. But I missed you all. And then Troy's like, I'm crazy. I, I've been talking to my imaginary friend that is you. We end this with. The only revelation that they really have left, which is clearly this is all about Jack. So if we've got nothing left to follow up on, we've obliterated the Shrike with like 18 photon torpedoes. Uh, We've killed all the changelings, but we still are no closer to fuck is supposed to happen here. So I guess that means we got to plumb Jack's depths, unfortunately. And I think this is uh, a really great use of exploring what Troy's powers are really are like now that you've kind of got a better narrative sense. Um, you've got an empath here who can maybe uh, take him down the, uh, and in a journey in a way to, to find out what's going on. So, and we end with the two of them sitting down and, and Diana, uh, Deanna 
talking through getting him to consider like what is the what are what are the tendrils what is the door let's go through the door we have to see as soon what's as she there. came on the ship as a matter of fact she's like something's real fucked up on here there yeah. the dark side is this is actually dagoba what the fuck yeah your, your son is a cave it's the dark side cave and you know we we've been teased two episodes in a row that we're gonna finally get the answer to what the fuck is going on with jack but it doesn't happen until episode nine. So that's where we're going. Compare and contrast Deanna Troy as a plot device and as a character from early seasons of TNG to now. And for as stupid, I mean, she was a pair of big boobs in a low cut dress. Oh, I, Captain, I have a, I suspect this shifty ass enemy captain might be plotting something nefarious. Okay. Thank you. Captain obvious. You don't right. say. Okay, got it. To now, uh, she is the primary vehicle to move this plot forward and directly address these deep-seated issues. Like, really, really good use of her Great. as a her as a magic being that has this telepathic ability. Uh, but even better is like the way that she approaches psychology in this, right? Yeah, they and, really flesh out her as a professional in yes. this and in a way that they never were really able to do in TNG. And it's very nice to see. Because I'd say really the closest they ever got to that was like her work with Barkley. Agreed. Uh, and this blows that out of the water. So cool stuff there. And it's easy to forget that like Troy is kind of a badass as best exemplified when she was like undercover doing the fucking Tal Shiar shit. Oh, yeah. Well, like, uh, unwilling too, right. Like she got roped into that and was like voluntold, by the way, you're going to have to make this work or you're going to be in a Romulan prison forever. Also, you know, lots of innocent people, right? Like you're, you're doing big, important stuff here. And again, through all of this, uh, those last few interactions she gets to have with Jack one on one, again, further cements the fact that I like this kid. The acting's good. They're asking a lot of this actor to portray all the zany magic powers like to the point where in the hallway, when lore has like these partitions up, they're about to get attacked by changeling thugs. And like he takes over her mind and is able to like puppet her through John wick fight sequences. Uh, but he's able to continue portraying this character in a compelling and reasonable way. And I think that's a really big ask. I completely agree, man. I think that uh, I'm I'm excited to see what the future holds, if they can make it happen with these actors they've picked out. You know, like uh, uh, we're about to get into the exciting finale and it is fantastic. And we're going to get a lot more candy uh, than the nutritious meals, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, when we do the finale and it's fun and it feels much more earned because you've had so much depth. Uh, but in terms of looking to the future, what happens after Picard season three, which is something that I think the writer's strike might actually help make happen. You know, if some of this stuff lays up for too long and you keep seeing Picard do super well in the ratings, which it is now the only Paramount plus show to ever make the top 10 of streaming twice. Cause uh, episode nine rated into the top 10 almost certainly episode 10 will do the same so it'll probably be a, a three-time hit for them i think they're gonna they're gonna move more resolutely towards doing a star trek legacy show and if you're gonna have ed spilliers and you're gonna have 
you know, some potential of some people who might be interested in, in coming in from the older shows as well to augment that. You could have something special on your hands and I'm, I'm hoping it comes together. And I'm ho- looking forward to reviewing the finale with you here. Yeah. You, you, you seem fully bought in. Sure. Uh, again, I wouldn't really focus on why seven and eight felt worse than the rest of the season three. Like, I think it really just comes down to the, the overacting of the villains. I think uh, it's it, it, the, the limited resources mattered a lot because the, the limited resources mattered both in the production sloppiness. Like there's straight up audio errors and two I scenes. don't even care about that stuff, man. It's, it was just a drag to watch. And I think what it was before is that you had multiple lines running with cast with, uh, characters in different scenarios on different planets, each of them doing new things, but having an opportunity to like fold throwback and um, nostalgia in. And once you had her take over the Titan and turn it into a slaughterhouse, like everybody's on the same plot line and there's no room to really chew up the scenes. Uh, It's, it's very grim and dark and, everybody is reacting instead of being proactive and exploring and doing cool stuff and fun. Thanks for listening to another Picard roundup. We look forward to uh, having you join us for the, the grand finale as we cover episodes nine and 10. We'll see you then. <laughs>